We are not a part of a majority, and I trust that doesn't discourage you. Sometimes in our flesh, I imagine, if you think about that, it may. We're right in that period of time in our calendar when we're observing Independence Day. When men who feared God and believed the gospel forged a country back in 1776. Are you aware that only 37% of the colonists were in favor of that war? And as that war became protracted and costly in terms of blood and treasure, I have no doubt it became even less popular. But that remnant of Americans who feared God persevered. And we have a country today as a result of their sacrifice. We stand on the shoulders of noble men and women. And we dare not drop that trust. I thank God for our troops today. I feel honored to be in your presence. When I see a man who's wearing the uniform of our country, I walk up and I thank him for serving our country. But we're in another minority. As the people of God, we're a remnant. And had there been a remnant in Sodom, Sodom would have been spared. There wasn't even a remnant in Sodom. But we have a remnant here. And what great things a remnant can do. But that's not what I'm going to be speaking about tonight. But I just felt I had to say that. But what I'd like to speak about tonight is the old, old story. Nothing new. But it has to do with having the mind of Christ on a given issue. In all the issues of life, we ought to have the mind of Christ on those issues, whatever that issue might be. Turn, if you would, please, to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is a psalm against self-reliance. The man of this world believes he can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. I'll do it myself, thank you. I don't need your help. I'll take care of it. Get out of the way. Self-reliance, the pride of man. This psalm teaches against that kind of prideful spirit. This is a psalm against self-reliance. This is a psalm which instead teaches us to be dependent upon the Lord. This season of the year being... Independence Day reminds me of when they tried to hammer out our Constitution, which took another 12 years. <laughs> they didn't have harmony. They did, they, they did not have unity. In fact, they were at loggerheads in Philadelphia. One faction wanting this, another faction wanting that. And finally, an old curmudgeon 
named Benjamin Franklin. He had a biblical name. Benjamin, son of the right hand, who I don't believe was a believer, all I've read about him. He feared God, but I don't think he had Christ in his heart from what I've read. But he stood up in that assembly as a God-fearing man and said, I submit that because of all this dissension, lack of unity, we need to get a local clergyman, who in that day would have been a fundamental Bible-believing man, and ask him to pray the God of heaven to help our deliberations. And they did that. And the product was our Constitution, which has served us so well. That was in 1787. The key word in this psalm is the word vain. Useless, worthless, empty. But let's read it. Follow along, please. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. In other words, building has to be done according to God's plans, His blueprint. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them, They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that we can come to Thee and solicit Thy help. And Lord, we we petition Thee now, Lord, help us as we open this precious book of truth. Help us, Lord, to have the mind of Christ on this very important issue. As we pray in every other issue of life, help us to find out what that mind is, and then, Lord, help us to take thy position on it. Help us now tonight as we go through this psalm that we might find that position for us as individuals and families and churches in this day of apostasy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 1, we learn we're to be dependent upon God for building houses or keeping a city. In Genesis chapter 12, we learn about the Tower of Babel. Very appropriate name for that endeavor. God had told mankind to spread abroad upon the face of the earth. Man in his rebellion said, no. We're going to gather ourselves together on the plains of Shinar. And they raised a ziggurat. Not a cigarette. A ziggurat. A huge edifice. They were working together, trying to make this thing as big as they could possibly do. 
And God looked down and saw their pride, their self-will, their rebellion against His orders and confused their tongues. And as a result of what He did, the nations of the world were split into 70 people groups according to the number of the children of Israel. Seventy. You can see that in the book of Deuteronomy. Now compare that confusion, that rebellion, that self-will, that pride, that is the, the, the epitome of that pride, the Tower of Babel is the epitome of that pride. Compare that with the building of Solomon's temple on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a mountain. It's with good reason, the Bible says, they went up to Jerusalem. When they built the, top, the, the temple of Solomon, they used huge blocks of limestone, many, many tons with one block of limestone, quarried miles away. It, it just boggles your mind how in that day they could have done that, how they could have even transported those huge blocks of limestone so, so far. But the Bible tells us that there wasn't the sound of a hammer where they were building. And they were quarried miles away and were transported somehow, some way that this engineering feat is mind-boggling. And when they got those huge blocks of limestone onto the Temple Mount, they fit together like a hand in a glove. You couldn't get a piece of paper between them. Why? Because they were dependent upon the Lord. That's why. On the one hand, man in his rebellion and self-will, we'll do it our way, God, just get out of my way. On the other hand, oh, God, help us build this thing. And he did. Working and watching is vain without God's blessing. He puts his power and his blessing forth, and it, but he expects us to do our best. We pray the Lord's Prayer. We ask for our daily bread. Does that mean that I can just lay in my hammock and open my mouth and let the ravens drop it in like he did for the prophet? I think not. I think when I pray the Lord's Prayer and I ask the Lord to give me my daily bread, I'm asking him to give me strength and health to go out and get a job, work hard, please my boss, get a paycheck, go out and cash the paycheck, go out to the grocery store, buy a loaf of bread, bring it home and eat it. He expects us to do our best. But he'll bless our endeavors. Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England, marched his armies into battle singing the Psalms. How many of your commanders do that, fellas? But those men marched into battle singing the Psalms. And he said, trust in the Lord, but keep your powder dry. I like that balance. There's a precious book written by a Confederate chaplain during the Civil War. It said, the heavens are weeping. When the Civil War first began, both sides thought it would be a brief conflict. Both were prideful, well, 
The Union said, we'll, we'll crush them. The South said, we'll take care of them. Both thought they would win. Short order. But as the conflict became protracted and costly, this particular book is about a Confederate chaplain. He explains all of a sudden that pride began to dissipate and despair gave way to hungry hearts and large attendance at his meetings. And many men got saved. Multitudes got saved. On one occasion, he was preaching to a group of soldiers, and they came under enemy fire. And everyone dove for cover. And one private saw the chaplain hiding behind an oak tree. He said, Chaplain, I thought you believed in the providence of God. He said, I do. The Lord providentially put this tree right here. <laughs> yes, we're to depend upon the Lord, but we're to do our best. In verse 2, we learn we're to be dependent upon God for gain, for increase, for security. And God's people can be at ease and be at rest after they've done their best. One particular day of our Lord's ministry, he was so exhausted and fatigued, he fell asleep in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. A storm so severe, those seasoned mariners said, we're going to perish. And I have no doubt, because they were fishermen, they'd seen many, many storms on that sea. But this was an unusually strong and violent storm. They thought they were going to lose their lives, and our Lord was fast asleep. I think he's a good example for us, my friends. After we've done our best, we can leave it in the Lord's hands. But in verses 3, 4, and 5, we learn we're to be dependent upon the Lord for building a family. That's where I'd like to spend most of my time here, if I, if I may. You children, when you marry, I hope you're planning to have a family, if God allows. Obviously, and with some, He doesn't allow that. But if God allows, I hope you're planning on having a family. Now, if you have one or two children, this world will smile upon you. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Replacing yourselves, that, that's, that's wonderful. That's nice. But if you have three, some people will begin to raise their eyebrows. You know, you've had more than two, don't you? Yes, yes, I know we have three. Just wondered if you knew that. And if you have four or more, you are now a target. Sometimes of outright hostility, rejection. But you know, as you walk with the Lord, I hope you realize you're to march to the beat of a different drum. Please, you young couples... 
don't march to the beat of the drum of this world. They're wrong. They're wrong in every priority they have. Why would we want to march to the beat of their drum? Why would we want to follow the Gallup poll to determine how we live our faith? Would you not want to have the mind of Christ about this issue as well as any other issue of life? Well, let's look at this from God's perspective. In verse 3, we learn that children are an heritage of God. That means an inheritance, a, a possession. And you don't work for an inheritance. That's a gift. It's a gift from the Father. In Genesis 33 and verse 5, here's Jacob speaking to Esau. Very tense moment. Jacob has just returned from Padan Aram, the land between the rivers. He spent a brief sojourn of over 14 years there. Accumulated four wives, lots of children. And he remembered as he was heading back to the promised land, the last time I saw my brother, he was writing my obituary. I wonder if he's still mad. I better placate his anger. So he began to send wave after wave of gifts and animals and critters. And when Esau finally shows up, he says, Who are these? He lost, he, he, is, he is crunching the numbers of all these kids. Who are all these children with thee? And Jacob said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. He didn't consider them a curse. He said, yeah, I got all these brats. You know, I don't know how it happened, but I got them. You know. That wasn't his attitude. Yeah, it's my encumbrance. It's my liability. It's, everyone has their... Cross to bear, you know, that's mine, I guess, all these kids. You notice that wasn't his attitude. The children that God hath graciously given thy servant. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 1 says, A wise son maketh a glad father. He's happy about that inheritance. Proverbs 23, 24, The fire of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. There are unique joys and blessings in having children. What's the logic of the inheritance? The logic is this. That child's a gift from God. If you fathers have ever had the privilege, and I, I use that word advisedly, if you've ever had the privilege of watching any of your children being born, it's an unutterable blessing, indescribable. For one thing, you learn what the word labor means. For another thing, you learn what sorry critters we are. Good thing we're not having babies. We're not that tough. When you see a baby being born into this world, 
I defy you to watch that baby being born into this world and remain neutral. How can anyone see that little child being born into this world and fail to say, Praise God, a baby! That baby came from God. Original life came from God and the image of God is passed on in the Son. In Genesis, in chapter 5 and verse 3, the Bible says that Adam begat a son in his own likeness after his image. Genesis 9, 6, in the image of God made he man. A man achieved social continuance through his son. This was so important to the mind of the common Israelite that God put this in his civil law for the Israelites. It was called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was an interesting process they followed. If, if you were to marry and you and your bride didn't have children for whatever reason and you died and left your widow childless, your next older brother was duty-bound to marry your widow. And if they were blessed of God and they had a child, that child would be reckoned to the dead father. What was God's reasoning? That his name not be put out of Israel. God wants your testimony to last beyond your life. He wants your influence and your walk with God and how you've tried to serve God to go beyond your days. That you being dead would yet speak. Godly parents are fully rewarded in a godly son. In Genesis 27 and verse 46, here's Rebekah about ready to commit suicide if Jacob married wives like Esau did. Esau. One of those rare individuals who looked on the outside like he was on the inside. You and I, you know, we get pretty polished on the outside, or more or less, you know. We sometimes remember to brush our tooth and take a shower and put on clean clothes. But Esau looked on the outside like he was on the inside. When he was born, the midwives... Ah! The midwife almost had cardiac arrest. It looked like an animal. It looked like a creature. It looked like a little beast. He was covered all over hairy like a woolen garment. Can you imagine? It's a wonder that poor midwife didn't have cardiac arrest. It's no wonder he was an accomplished hunter. You just go to a water hole and crouch and he looked like a shrub. Reach out and grab the game. And because he was on the inside like he was on the outside, he married Canaanite women. His attitude wasn't to, to preserve God's testimony or anything about God's truth or walking with God. That was of no interest or of any priority to him. His priority was his lower nature. He lived according to his belly. And so to him, and when he, you know, got to a certain age, woman. 
woman. And he bopped one over the head and dragged her back to his house. Got a couple of them. Canaanite women. And when Rebecca saw what he did, oh my, she was ready to have almost suicide if, if Jacob would do the same thing. That's how concerned a parent is for a child. Because children, you don't really think about this, or maybe, maybe you do. I, maybe you, I hope you do. But you and your life and your future and your testimony mean a great deal to your parents. Your parents have not only given you to God and they pray for you and they've counseled you and they've tried to guide you and teach you. They lose sleep over you. They have sleepless nights on your account because they're so concerned about your future. A woman who's thinking God's thoughts finds great fulfillment in childbearing, nursing, mothering. What a high and lofty and noble position to be a mother. That used to be a precious word in our country. Now it's demeaned. Now it's denigrated. Now it's almost spat upon. Oh, you're a stay-at-home mother. Like you've got leprosy or something. Well, if you're a stay-at-home mother, I praise God for you. Rachel in Genesis 30 and verse 1 was willing to give up her life if God wouldn't give her children. That's how important she thought it was. Hannah wept, 1 Samuel 1, 7. She wept uncontrollably. She was disconsolate. Why? Because I want a baby. Today, women go to their gynecologists. I want to get fixed, doc. God forbid that that would ever happen among God's people. Psalm 113 and verse 9 says, He maketh a barren woman to keep house and to be the joyful mother of children. Why? Because they're God's precious, perfect gift. They're not only God's heritage, they're God's reward. And a reward is not of debt, it's of grace. If God gives you a child, it's because God gave that child to you. You didn't deserve it. I don't deserve children. If you have any child, it's God's gift to you. It's a stewardship. It's a gift. If God withholds a child from you, that's because God in His providence doesn't want you to have a child. Don't ask me to explain that. I can't. God withheld from Rachel. God withheld from Hannah for a time. God withholds from some people for the rest of their lives. Go with me, please, to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles, chapter 13. Just to set the stage here for you. The Ark of God is now coming back to Israel because the Philistines had run out of Preparation H in every drugstore on the coast. They were in dire straits. And so the Ark of God was coming back Let's begin reading here, First Chron Chronicles 13, look at please verse 14. 
And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And then this little enigmatic, inscrutable statement, look at this, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I have curiosity and wonder what he got. Did he win the Israeli lotto? Did God give him a Corvette chariot? What, what did he get? Did his corn run thousand bushels to the acre? What, what did God give Obed-Edom? Well, let's turn over to First Chronicles chapter 26 where we can begin reading here at verse 4. Moreover, the sons of Obed-Edom were Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehozabad the second, Joah the third, Sekar the fourth, Nethaniel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, Pulthi the eighth, for God blessed him. Eight boys! <laughs> uh, what's the matter? Isn't that exciting to you? It ought to be. God says it was a blessing from God for this man to have eight sons. And if you don't rejoice with Obed-Edom, there's something wrong with your blesser. Something wrong with your thinking. Something wrong with your perspective and your priorities. Because a typical American today would fall over in a faint if they realized they were going to have eight children. Eight children! Good thing zero population growth and banned parenthood weren't on the scene. They would have cardiac arrest. Deuteronomy 28 is an interesting chapter of Scripture because here is God's carrot and stick. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses tells the assembled nation of Israel, if you obey God's testimony, statutes, ordinances, and commandments, God will bless you. Your corn will go a thousand bushel of the acre. You won't need a standing army. One of you will chase a thousand of them. You won't have to have blue cross, blue shield, because you'll never get sick. And he goes on to enumerate all these blessings. But if you disobey me, you better have the blessed blue cross, blue shield plan you've ever devised, because you're going to need it every week. And don't bother planting your seed, because you won't even get that back. And you better have a huge standing army because one of them will chase a thousand of you. So you get the idea. Deuteronomy 28, you obey, God will bless you. You disobey, God will curse you. Deuteronomy 28, 4. Here's God speaking to Israel that if they would obey, blessed shall be the fruit of thy body. What's the fruit of our bodies? Children! One aspect of obeying God and His principles and His Word is that God's going to take notice of your family. And He might well give you children. Joshua 24 and verse 3. Here's Joshua recounting God's blessings on Abraham. And he says, And I took your father Abraham and multiplied his seed. You don't multiply until you have at least four. He says he multiplied his seed. 
Genesis 48, verse 4, here's Jacob telling Joseph of God's words in Canaan. Behold, I'll make thee fruitful and multiply thee, and I'll make thee a multitude of people. Planned Parenthood obviously wasn't there. It's the Lord that opens the womb and shuts the womb. 1 Samuel 1, Samuel's born from Hannah after her broken-hearted praying. Genesis 21, here's Isaac from Sarah after she was 100 years old. He was 100 years old, she was 90, so there's hope even for the geriatric folks. Genesis 25, 21, here's Jacob and Esau from Rebekah after God heard Jacob's prayer in that case. In the Bible, we learn of both husbands and wives praying for children and God answering both of them. Joseph was born from Rachel. Judges 13, here's Samson from Manoah's wife. Matthew 1.18, the Lord Jesus from Mary. A humble little probably teenage girl from Galilee. Galilee of the nations. That part of, of, of Israel where it was on the other side of the tracks, that bad part of town. Remember what the servant girl said to Peter? I know you, you're, you're, you're a Gal- your speech betrays you. You're from Galilee, aren't you? Just like you can tell if a guy's from Alabama or the Carolinas when he starts speaking, right? We all have distinctive speech, do we not? And they could tell he was from Galilee, Galilee of the nations, that melting pot up there that was despised by the purists in Israel. That's the little girl that God used to bear our Savior. Luke 1, 24, John the Baptist was born from Elizabeth. <laughs> Here's Zechariah working his course in the temple, being very dutiful, being very obedient. All of a sudden, one day, ah! you'd do that too if you saw an angel. And the angel, as we find, they calmed that old man down. Said, God's heard your prayers. And Zechariah, about ready to receive Social Security, gray head, sipping Geritol. What prayers? What's they talking about? When they first got married, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they would get on their knees, no doubt, and, oh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, give us a child, give us a child. And they'd pray, they'd pray, they'd pray. Pretty soon they didn't pray every day. Then it was maybe every other week, and then maybe every other month, and then maybe every other year. And finally the praying stopped. Now here he is, Social Security, Geritol, Lumbago, Sciatica. God's heard your prayers. (laughs) There's hope for you geriatric folks. Therefore, Pray for the reward of children like Leah did, like Rachel did, Hannah did, Zechariah did, Jacob did. And who knows what God might do. I can't stand up here and say, if you do thus and so, God will do thus and so. I can't speak for God like that. But I can give you principles, and I hope you're getting these principles. The reward might come through adoption. 
Adoption is biblical. We're not only birthed into the family of God, we, we are adopted as sons. Ephraim and Manasseh were adopted sons. The reward might come through adoption, but my friend, make sure God wants you to do that. I've seen some people come up to that door that was shut for them, and they beat the door down. They weren't sure it was God's will, but they beat the door down anyway, and now they're sorry. But if it is God's will, it's biblical. What if you can't bear a child or adopt a child? Don't lose heart. Paul the Apostle had sons. Timothy and Titus. He wasn't their physical father, but he was their spiritual father. There's a sense in which God wants all of us to have children. Pastor talked about that. Just like in the natural realm, the fruit of our body is our, our children of our bodies. In the spiritual realm, it's, it's children that we lead to Christ. And some would be discipled and taught by us and nurtured by us, and they could become our spiritual children. There's indirect proof that God believes children are a blessing and a reward. And that's the providential placement of our Lord Jesus Christ in a family. They didn't just find the Lord under a toadstool somewhere. He was born into a family. Go with me, please, to Matthew chapter 13. For those of you who have come out of the Roman church, this is of interest to you, or if you have loved ones or friends in the Roman church. Matthew 13, beginning, please, at verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called... Mary, and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and his sisters, plural. Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? So assuming just four brothers and two sisters, and there's probably more than that, this was a family of at least seven children. At least seven children. So the ordinary run-of-the-mill garden variety, but vanilla, pedestrian, prosaic family. There's seven children. Why are you looking at me like that? Do you want the mind of Christ on this issue? I hope you do. Children are not given as a penalty. They're not given as a burden. God's not up in heaven. Ah, what? Here's some kids. Fix you. That's not what God does. God are given as a reward, a blessing, an inheritance. One of God's great rewards in life is the fulfilling and rewarding privilege of guiding and counseling grandchildren on the basis of what God has taught us. God calls them a crown. A crown. Proverbs 17, 6. Children's children are the crown of old men. Far worse than turning down a million dollar reward is to deliberately choose to be childless in your marriage. And there's multitudes of believers who are deliberately choosing to be childless 
And then we'll face a lonely, shallow, hollow, crownless old age. One of the inexpressible joys of old age is investing your life in literal or spiritual grandchildren. Well, what about children from man's perspective? Look at verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 127. He calls them arrows. Interesting term. We all know what an arrow is, no doubt. An arrow was used to offend the enemy. An arrow was used to defend yourself. The arrows come in different sizes. All at one time or another were rough twigs. And they have to be fashioned and shaped with painstaking skill. All arrows go basically the way we aim them. A man of war is glad to have weapons that can fly where he can't go. And what wonders a man can accomplish if he has many affectionate children to help his desires and lend themselves to his vision. And because of this, they've got to be made serviceable early, but because if they're not, they'll be crooked and dangerous. Loyal, obedient, affectionate children are a man's best helpers. That's why they're called arrows. But in verse 5, he says they're happiness. And may I say on the authority of Scripture, if you're married and you've deliberately chosen not to have children and you're happy, it's because you have been deceived and deluded by the world's philosophies. That's how far removed you are from the mind of Christ on this issue. You're ignorant of what constitutes real happiness and real fulfillment. Amen. And may I further say you're rebellious. And you're selfish to God's plan. Those with no children, sooner or later, are usually sad about that. Those with many children are the happiest. You know, when you have a host of children in your house... You have fancy dishes like rice and beans. And then next week, beans and rice. You learn what it means to, to use hand-me-downs and visit the day-old store and go to good Baptist department stores like Goodwill, Salvation Army, Amvets, all those places. And you learn the garbage route before that truck gets there. You learn all kinds of interesting things like that. And so, you know, when we meet people that have had a lot of children, our kids don't get their head. And, of course, most of my kids are gone now. But when this didn't happen, those kids didn't get together and cry on each other's shoulder. <laughs> I was one of nine. Oh, no. I was one of ten. <laughs> That's not what they did. When they got their heads together, yeah, it was a riot. Yeah, it was a barrel full of monkeys. They compared notes about the riot that it was. Will you have problems? Of course you will. Challenges? Indubitably. <laughs> yes. But I've yet to meet a child from a large, loving, godly family who was bitter about it. I'm sure there are some. I haven't met one yet. I don't want to. <laughs> and notice the extent of the happiness He's happiest if he has his quiver full. Full. Now, I've, maybe this has happened to you, preacher. I've bumped into people who have actually said to me, 
And they were, I, I think they were serious because they, they didn't laugh or smile. Well, my quiver is pretty small, brother. My quiver can only hold a couple. Not a small quiver. All right, now let's think this through. Here you are, you're in the Israeli Defense Forces. Tomorrow morning, our sergeant's going to put us over the edge, and we're going to face the Assyrians. These are not nice people. If they caught you, they would stake you out on the ground and literally cut you in pieces while you were still alive. They would take you and, and they'd put a sharpened stake in the ground and impale you on that stake while you were alive. Nice people. So tomorrow morning, we're facing the Assyrians, boys. Clean your weapons. Be ready. We're going over the top, 0400. I don't know about you, but my quiver would be dragging. I'd have 5,000 arrows in that quiver. If I was facing the Assyrians, two arrows. Psalm 128 and verse 3 says, The wife is a fruitful vine. Again, the very next psalm. Emphasis on fruit bearing, having children. And he says here in, in this psalm, You won't be ashamed. With a large family, you have the resources to stand together to withstand the pressures of life. can also mean you don't fear the reproach of barrenness. It says here you speak with the enemies in the gate. That's where the enemies attacked, was in the gate. This is the, the idea of, you better not mess with my family, buddy. I got ten kids. <laughs> I had two daughters. They were very safe. They had seven brothers. You touch my sister, you're dead meat. That was their attitude. Godly children greatly enhance your influence for the Lord. There's an order. In, let, let, let's think of this practically. Because I can see some of you, you're crunching the numbers here. You're thinking this through. You're being very deliberate. You're, you're not taking... I, I, and I admire that in you. You're not taking me at face value here. You're thinking this over very carefully. All right, let's, let's do that. There's an order in Scripture to bear children. There is, yep. It's in Genesis 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply, at least four, and replenish the earth. Now, I'm not trying to do that all by myself. God wants His people to do that. The Muslims are trying to do that. The Philistines and Canaanites are trying to do that. God's people are visiting their gynecologists and taking pills. To our shame. So there's this order in Scripture, and you'll look in vain from Genesis to the Revelation to find God saying, Stop! That's enough, that's enough! God has never said that. That order is still in effect. Amen. Be fruitful. Multiply. 
replenish the earth. Therefore, since God wants us to do that, I'll guarantee you the God of this world doesn't want you to. And he wants you to find a host of reasons why that doesn't apply to us in the New Testament. Well, you know, tithing, that's the Old Testament. Kind of that idea. Let's see what you could do if you had an ordinary run-of-the-mill garden variety, vanilla, pedestrian, prosaic family of at least just, just seven, just seven. Let's not get out of hand. Just, just, just seven children, like the Lord's family. In the first generation, you'd have how many? Seven. Let's say in the second generation, because of your teaching, you're following God's commandments and teaching your children His principles, they also want to be fruitful and multiply. And, and so in the second generation, because they also want to have kids, and they each had a normal run-of-the-mill family of seven, what would you now have in the second generation? Forty-nine. Okay, are you, you're with me. Now, I don't want to tax our brains here, so let's just take this out very rapidly to the eighth generation. Just, just eight generations. If each of your grandchildren would also just have an ordinary size family of just seven, to the eighth generation, you would now have 5,815,222 arrows to offend the enemy. No wonder the God of this world wants to give you a thousand reasons to reduce the size of your family. In 1960, the average American family was 3.65 children. I'd like to see that one child, wouldn't you? (laughs) Since 1972, America has experienced a decline in our population. These demographers tell us that we need a rate of at least 2.01 children per family to just maintain the status quo. We haven't done that since 1972. Well, you might say, well, what's going on then? We've got lots of people. Yes, we do. Because of longevity and immigration. Not because God's people are bearing children. Because we've been very disobedient in this area. But because of longevity, we're all living longer. And because of immigration. We have lots of people coming to our shores, this wicked country that everyone wants to get into. Well... That might be. But I've heard that the world is overpopulated and they're starving millions all over the place. Well, that's true. There's lots of people, but not that many. You could put the entire population of the globe within the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida and not touch another human being. The Bible tells us that a country's people is its greatest asset. Yes, it's true. In India, they're starving millions. But that's because they have a wrong religion. They won't eat a rat or kill a rat. That might be my uncle. They won't kill a beef animal because that might be grandpa. They believe in reincarnation. They won't even kill a cockroach for crying out loud. That might be some other relative of mine with bad karma. They've got a wrong religion. Don't use that old canard. The world's not overpopulated. Well, that might be. 
but I just can't bear to bring a child into such an evil world. Oh, aren't you noble. You know, when God deported his children, Israel, first by the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity, he sent prophets, men of God, to prepare them after their 70 years of captivity to come back to the land to still be God's people. And some of the things those prophets said was, Don't forget to have babies! Because at the end of 70 years, there better be someone to come back. Well, that might be. But I've been thinking about this while you've been talking. And if we had all these children, my wife would have to stay home and be a wife and a mother. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly the point. Why, why would that be such a catastrophe? That's God's purpose. That's God's principle for her. Yeah, she wouldn't be able to work in a factory or the office. She'd have to stay home and be a wife and a mother. That's right. Your child wouldn't have to experience the tragedy of being raised by a boob tube or some daycare center that treated them like a, a number or a piece of flesh and had no concern for their welfare and where they get sick. I haven't been able to give my children a lot of this world's goods, but I'll tell you what, they have a precious legacy, and that is that every time they came home, their mother was there. They didn't have to read how to fix their TV dinner on the microwave from their mother who's working the second shift. And we get lots of girls at Hepzibah House because those children are raising themselves or they're being raised by an older sibling who's interested in her boyfriend, not in their baby brother or sister. And it's no, what, what do you think a teenage child is going to do who's hedonistic as the world is long and is galloping hormones going on? What do you think that child's going to do when mom and dad are on around for crying out loud? They're going to get themselves in trouble. Well, that might be. But I've been crunching the numbers here while you've been talking, and I just can't afford to have kids. Well, if that's what you're waiting for, you won't have one. You won't have any. I don't know about you, Pastor, but we couldn't afford to have any of ours. We couldn't afford to have a single one of our children. But God provided for them. This is just as much of a matter of faith as tithing. You know, when first someone introduced me to tithing, I thought they were crazy. That's Old Testament. The Lord wouldn't leave me alone. Finally, I came to the all right, one day, all right, Lord, here. And I found out that two and two equaled ten. All of a sudden, our bills were paid. All of a sudden, we were doing okay. Because God was blessing. It was a matter of faith and obedience. Just like bearing children, it's a matter of faith and obedience. Now, like I said a moment ago, you might have to learn thrift and frugality and learn how to do without. And know if, if you want the biggest and the best and the most expensive and eat out a hundred times a week, you're going to have a problem. Well, that might be. 
But I can't stand diapers and diarrhea and colic and throw up and sleepless nights and to think of some baby hanging off of my breast. That's gross. Well, you've just sounded like the typical American woman. A baby would cramp my style and ruin my figure. You've just confessed how far removed you are from God's plan of fulfillment. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Hannah could all help you if you'd listen to them. They believe that the hand that rocked the cradle and met the needs of a husband and family was rewarding and fulfilling. It wasn't beneath her dignity. It was noble. Well, that might be, but I don't have enough for retirement now. I have all these kids. What do I retire on? Well, may I, let me let you in on something. The Social Security Administration is not losing sleep over your welfare. They're not, they're not worried about you. They don't even know you're alive. You're just a number. And if you're trusting in the Social Security Administration, you're trusting in a bruised reed and a smoking flax. Far better than any 401k or retirement plan as, as faithful, obedient, loyal children who would meet your needs when you can no longer care for yourself. Well, I can space them out, can I? Well, I'm sure you could. Especially if your wife nurses. A, a mother who's nursing her baby will typically space out her children. Now, that's not of no guarantee. Didn't work for my wife. She's fertile as a turtle. Around our house, it was hello, goodbye, and I'm pregnant. <laughs> but typically, nursing will help you space out your children. <clears throat> you realize that if I'm speaking to some typical believers, some of you have already been sterilized. There's hope. I have received more than one phone call about this issue from people upon whose heart the Spirit of God has worked. And one man in particular called in tears. He's weeping. And he said, God's convicted me. I did it when I was a young Christian. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I shouldn't. My wife was having a fit. She didn't want me to, but I did it anyway. And now I'm sorry. And I, what can I do? And, I, and I, so I gave him a phone number. And he had reversal surgery, and they had a baby which died, but they had two more. So just because you may have had this or that surgery, don't lose hope. Who knows what God might do? I know a pastor who had that surgery, who confessed this to me. And he said, the Lord wouldn't leave me alone about this. And he was, you know, typical pastor. He's poor as a church mouse. He didn't have five cents in his pocket. That surgery is expensive. His lost neighbor paid for his surgery. If we have a heart to obey God, who knows what God will do to help us to obey Him? Well-trained, obedient children damage the devil's kingdom, and he doesn't want you to have children. He wants you to be a modern American. He wants you to march to the beat of that American drum, one or two children at the most. Just replace yourselves.
God wants you to be fertile, productive, (laughs) multiply. The family's under attack. It's being redefined. And sadly, in fundamental churches, it's being redefined. Let's depend upon the Lord, not popular opinion. And sadly, I've met grandparents, believing grandparents, who have tried to discourage their children from having children. I hope that's not your case, but I've I've certainly seen many situations like that. I hope you listen to the Lord and not those voices. Let's bear arrows. Let's make them straight. Let's fashion them. Let's, Let's use them and shoot them to God's glory. Restrain them. Train them. Whip the daylights out of them. Be careful about that. Make sure you do that in private. But let's march to the beat of God's drum, not the world.